morning. <clears throat> Two things before we get going. Uh, I can't say enough. Uh, if you have the opportunity to come tonight, please come to Trunk or Treat. Um, I'm looking for extremely tight pants because I'm coming as Billy. Uh, oh, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. I love your pants. All right. <clears throat> Second thing is this, um, for all you Dodger fans, there is counseling all week long. So I'm here for you. I, I'm not just a shepherd for you when the Dodgers are winning. I'm a shepherd when the Dodgers are not doing their best. How about that? <clears throat> All right. It's really appropriate that in light of the Dodgers, we're talking about what we're talking about this morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles, you can open them up to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to be in verse 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some, there's some people coming down. Just raise your hand. We'd be happy to get you a Bible uh, this morning. But one of the things that we've been doing over the last few weeks, and it's been kind of, I think, odd for us, mainly because we're Americans, because we've been talking about the best place to be is in both weakness and in a place of surrender. Now, again, for those of us that are Americans, we don't like that because we don't like the fact of anything being weak. That's just not who we are. We're trained not to be weak. And then secondly, the other thing that we're oftentimes trained to do is not surrender. I mean, we won the Revolutionary War, we won World War I, World War II, right? We just, that's who we are. We're people that don't surrender. Now, what's so odd about this idea of surrender and weakness <clears throat> is that when you read the book of Acts, Paul doesn't seem like an unconfident guy. He doesn't look like he's having an identity crisis. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, Paul looks extremely bold, so the question that we're going to try to ask today is just this, what gave him his confidence? Because if we're going to understand this thing, because I don't want you to be unconfident, lack confidence, I want you to be confident. So then the question we have to ask ourselves then is what made Paul confident? Now the interesting thing about this confidence is he talks about that in verse 4. If you've got your Bibles, look down there, and he talks about this idea of confidence. Now, confidence, don't mistake this with self-confidence. We're going to talk about that just a little bit. But this idea of confidence has within it somewhere that I'm placing my trust. Okay, that is very important where we're going today. Confidence always has a, a, with a, place that I'm going to, or a place that I place my trust. Now, this week I was looking about, okay, so what do people tell us about this idea of, <clears throat> of what we mean? I'm going to keep going here. What we mean by being confident. Now, this I got from Forbes. Are you ready for this? This is how it is that we're being told to find confidence. One, get things done. Okay, if you get things done, you're going to be confident. Monitor your progress. Do the right thing. Exercise. Be fearless. Stand up for yourself. Think long term. Number eight, oh my gosh. Do more of what makes you happy. Wow. Nine, don't care what others think, but look at this last one. Trust yourself. Now, for those of you that grew up like I did as a Gen Xer, we grew up in the Stuart Smalley generation. Does anybody remember who Stuart Smalley was from Saturday Night Live? Okay, if you don't, those of you that are younger, just ask somebody my age and they'll tell you what it is. But Stuart Smalley had this skit. He would always stand in front of a mirror and he'd always say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. He tried to practice positive thinking in which he was going to develop trust in himself. Now, what's interesting about this trust, again, where we find our confidence, is that Paul also had a place that he placed his confidence. 
In Philippians 3, we find this where he says, look, this is where I placed my confidence. I used to place it. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, and by the way, when he says that, that's not a good thing, I have more. Now watch this. As a Jewish man, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to a law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness of the law, blameless. In other words, check, 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 check. He did everything that you're supposed to do to be confident. Now, at that particular time, and this is what we have to wrestle with, if you remember last week, we talked about this idea of letters of recommendation. The way that people had confidence in others at that time was more around the idea of group. That's where they found confidence. If your group accepted you, you could have confidence in that person. In the United States, though, we have a different kind of confidence, which is, again, a trust in ourselves. So then the question is, is what do they tell us then if we're not confident? So here's seven signs that you lack a, self, a sense of self-confidence, right? This is also found on a website that, that's a counseling type website. It just says this. One, you change your environment. So in other words, if you lack a sense, you're going to change your environment a lot. Your relationships mold you. You often have radical shifts in your opinion. You don't like being asked about yourself. You get bored easily. Your relationships don't run deep. And look at seven. Deep down, you don't trust yourself. Just stop for just a second. Inside of this, they also said that one of the reasons that we need to trust ourselves is because you can't trust others. Now, did anybody bother to think, if I can't trust those other people, what makes me think I can trust myself? In other words, what starts to happen is, is we begin to build our trust around ourselves, and we know this, that's a very shaky place to build our trust. The other thing they said, well, the reason that you're this way is because of the way you were parented. <laughs> Don't you love that? Gosh, I'm just waiting for one day when my parents or my kids are sitting down in counseling and they're like, oh, but you don't know my dad. <laughs> okay, here's how to help kids then feel more confident. Never laugh at their ideas, no matter how landish they are. That's stupid. <laughs> Put them in unfamiliar social situations. Have them learn to play a musical instrument. Include them in the kitchen. Celebrate their successes. Have them teach you something. Enable their creativity. Show confidence in your own actions. Make them talk about their problems. I want to know how they do that. And then the last one they have is let them fail. Now, what's interesting about this idea of let them fail is watch what they say about it. While success is pretty easy to deal with, learning to cope with failure is no easy task, especially when a child is not used to it. And in order to get used to it, the child simply has to experience it time and time again. It doesn't come naturally to parents, but we must let our kids fail sometimes. Good thought. While trying to build Legos or attempting to ride a bike without training wheels, it may frustrate or even anger them at times. But as Ann Landers, because Ann Landers can't be wrong, said, it's not what you do for your children, but what you have taught them to do for themselves that will make them successful human beings. Now just stop for just a second. Everything about our culture is find confidence in yourself. Now, the problem with that is something that I think is very important that Jesus talked about when he just said, look, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So that's one instance. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Here's the thing about building your life around yourself. Also in all those things that I found was a study out of Australia. If you know anything about Australian men, these are dudes that probably epitomize everything about self-reliance. We think, these Americans think we are manly men. You've got to remember, they were a former penal colony. And they grew up in the ruggedness of Australia. But here's what they found on men that developed a self-reliance. Are you ready for this? This is the end game of self-reliance. They were, through their self-reliance, killing themselves. They were killing themselves because they wouldn't ask for help. And in not asking for help, what was happening to them was, is they weren't going to doctors. They weren't going to seek help in any area of their lives. And in fact, the other thing that they found was, is that Australian men, because of their self-reliance, were like by an astronomical amount more likely to commit suicide. They had built their house on the sand. Now, here's what's so cool, what Paul does. See, Paul in Philippians says, look, these assets I've come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. In other words, he said, listen to me, all those things that I found confidence in, I no longer find confidence in them. More than that, he says, I now regard things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's helping us to understand the rock for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because of a righteousness derived from the law, but because I have a righteousness that now comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. Don't miss those two times. Confidence has to be placed somewhere. My trust must go somewhere. And here's the lesson that Paul learned. He learned that while he was unfaithful, God was always faithful. That means that if I place my confidence in my job, if I place my confidence in my marriage, if I place my confidence in the Dodgers... They let us down, don't they? But there's an amazing truth here that Paul is going to hope that I hope he'll unpack for us, which is Christ is always faithful. Now, what he even clarifies, if you look down in verse 5, if you got your Bibles, look down there. He says that now that's why we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. He didn't see anything whatsoever inside of himself that would in any way whatsoever be that rock in which to build his life. He instead knew there was something greater to that. That's why he said that not now we have such confidence, but look at this. He says our confidence is placed somewhere else. It's not placed in myself. It's not placed in the stock market. It's not placed in my house. It's not placed in my social stand. My confidence is in God through Christ. That's a huge statement. Now think about this again. Let's reframe it. Now we have such trust placed in God through Christ. We have learned to place our trust in a different place. It's no longer sand is his idea, but it's a rock. 
Now, the interesting part about this is, and John Calvin kind of wrote on this, because when I first thought of this, I thought, you know what, is he kind of just being Pollyannish? But I love what John Calvin said. This disclaiming of all merit is not pretend modesty, but he says what he really learned and felt from the heart. Now, how the question, did he learn this? Well, later on in chapter 3, uh, Christian's going to unpack this for us next week, and it's starting in verse 7. But he starts to compare himself to Moses. Now, here's what God does all the time. God always knows those places that we're placing our trust that are in the wrong places, and God, being the loving God that he is and the good God that he is, always knows that he has to disrupt where we're placing trust in anything other than himself. Now, watch what he does with Moses. Moses said to the Lord, this was after God called him, if you remember the burning bush, he said, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, I don't speak very well, and you want me to go speak for you? Then the Lord said to him, I love this, who made man's mouth? Moses, I get how the tongue and the teeth and the lips and the mouth come together to form words. I made you inside of your mom. Even your struggle with speaking, while he's not the author of the sinfulness that causes speech problems, he is a God that can supersede all things. Moses, who made your mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now just don't go past this so quickly. You see what God is going after in Moses? He finds an area of weakness inside of him, and then he says, Moses, I'm going to show you my power. Now Moses, like the rest of us, said, oh, Lord, please send somebody else, right? Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in the heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, which he had already showed him what he could do with a staff by turning it into a snake, with which you will shall do signs. In other words, Moses, I've got you. See, here's the thing about trust. Number one, not only do we struggle to trust God, and in that, I would say that is one of the biggest problems that we face as people, but it's not only that we don't trust God, we don't believe that he can do it, nor that we do we believe it will be good. This is the struggle. Paul's laying out for us his confidence, and he's helping us to understand that our confidence does not come from ourself. It does not come from letters of recommendation. It does not come from any of those places. In fact, what he's telling us is, I, like Moses, who we're going to talk more about, found a confidence not in myself, but in God. Now, you can see this with Scott Halfman. I love what he wrote here. Indeed, the call of Moses demonstrates that these very obstacles are an essential part of the call itself. In other words, God intends it. Illustrating clearly that God's grace, not the prophet's strength, is the source of his sufficiency. God has a tendency to find our weaknesses, to show us our weaknesses, and then to show off his power. Our tendency with our weaknesses is either to hide them 
or to find somebody else to do it so I don't have to. God says, no, I can work through your weaknesses. Now look at this, verse 5, at the very end of it. This is what Paul has learned. But our sufficiency from God, who, look at that, made us sufficient. Now this is weird. In other words, what he's saying is, is our sufficiency comes from God, and now somewhere in there, God is going to make us sufficient to be able to do what he's asked us to do. Now how does he do that? Well, in 2 Corinthians, we've been talking about this one a lot of time, is that God knew that within Paul, he did not trust God. There were all kinds of areas that Paul did, but he found this one. Have you ever noticed in your life, all these other areas of your life, you may trust God, but then all of a sudden, at each facet of life, and each time that something comes along, we learn that there are areas of our life we don't trust God. And in this particular area, God says, you don't trust me. Now watch this. He tells them, look, you don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In other words, we were in a terrible spot. Here's the other thing I've learned. God oftentimes will corner us and not let us out and force us to deal with where we don't trust him. True? Man, I've always found that in my life. I am, a, I am a weasel. I love to squeeze out of things. I love to kind of figure out how to shy and shuck and jibe and get away from things. But then there's just times where God says, you are not getting away. You're going to deal with this. And he says to him, but that, here's the reason why, was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God. Look at how he connects this. Who raises the what? Dead? I mean, seriously, have you ever thought about how crazy it is then when we tell God, I got this, he's like, well, you know, I, I've raised dead people. I kind of understand how to rescue you. I understand how this world works. I'm the one who put it together. I'm the one that formed you. I know how things work. Do you trust me? And we look back at him and say, got it. Paul had one of those times. Watch this. So to keep him from becoming conceited, that word conceited literally has within it this idea of a self-reliance. It's everything we're talking about. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, he had incredible truth that was given to him by God. In fact, he just told us he actually got transported through a vision up into heaven. A thorn in the flesh, or a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited or self-reliant. Remember I told you God will what? Corner us. Now I always love when people, you know, they try to cast Satan out of things. Paul could have tried all he wanted to cast Satan out of this. There was no Satan getting out of it at all because God had him there for a reason. Now he said in this case, three times I pleaded with the Lord this, that it should leave me. Now if you've ever been there before where you're just thinking to yourself, I want out. I just want out. I don't want to deal with this thing. It happens in all kinds of areas of life. It can be everything from as simple as parenting to marriage to our workplace. It can even be something as brutal as things like cancer and death and different things like that. 
At different points, God allows these things to happen. And what's also interesting is oftentimes he doesn't just cause things to happen to us or allow things to happen to us. He allows things to happen to those people that we love because sometimes I would rather go through those things than my kids or my wife or my friends go through it. And in fact, I believe that the greatest area of trust oftentimes is not with my personal life, but trusting God with those people that I love. Paul prayed three times, get me out of this. I've had people come to my office all the time. I just want this to be over. What do I need to do? God must be trying to teach me something. I just want out. Just anything whatsoever to go back to the 70s or 80s because I'm really dating myself again. Calgon, take me away. I just want out. I just want it over. But look at this. The purpose of suffering in Christianity, this is by James L. Christensen, is not to avoid difficulty, but to produce a character adequate to meet it when it comes. It does not make life easy. Rather, it seeks to make us great enough for life. I love that statement. God does not want us to escape difficulty. He doesn't want us to run away from it or try to shuck and jibe around it. He wants us to stay in it because in staying in it, he begins to prepare us to make us adequate for the life that he's called us to. And then, you know this, about the moment that you feel like you've kind of figured out how to deal with this particular thing and to trust God, then God brings something new into our lives and says, now I'm going to give you a new area to trust me with. I mean, I seriously, I thought I had marriage figured out until I had children. Then I had to learn marriage and children. Then I thought I had marriage and infants figured out, and they became toddlers. Then I thought I had that figured out, and I think you know where I'm going. Every facet of life has this phenomenal capacity to cause us, to train us, to trust God. And let me just say this. Until your dying breath, you will never, ever escape needing to trust God because that's right where he wants us. He's going to leave us there. Now, why? I love this part. But he said to me, now just imagine this, Jesus talking to Paul in this moment. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So it's Paul's response Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul is beginning to understand where does this confidence come from? It comes as one by one God begins to address different areas of our life and to show us you can't handle it, but I can. God has never ever afraid to allow us to hurt. Remember I talked about earlier, even the psychologists understand this. God knows that we need to be entered into a place of failure because in that place of failure, we don't learn to trust in ourselves. We learn something far more powerful. We learn that trusting of ourselves doesn't get us anywhere, but we can learn ongoingly in this way to learn to trust God. That's why when he said in this next part, and this is his epiphany, you ready for this? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Where did Paul's confidence come from? It came from weakness and surrender that led to trusting God, and he was strengthened. It's crucial. Now in Philippians 3, you even see this to kind of go back to it, because these are kind of the verses I'm jumping between. That's why Paul said, my aim is to, to know him. 
That's what I've made my life about, is just to know Jesus, to experience the power of his resurrection. Remember he talked about this God in chapter one that can raise the dead? I wanna learn who is this God that can raise the dead? Now so often we begin to create for our lives comfort lives that have no pain or difficulty in them because we ultimately don't wanna trust God, so we create lives that don't need to trust God, and actually what we end up creating is lives that don't, then we don't experience the power of his resurrection. We don't experience trust in him to see his power to overcome anything. And to be like him in his death, surrender. And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead, I want to see power. Let me just throw this out there. If you want to see the power of God, quit making lives that are comfortable and start creating lives that actually demand that we trust in God. Will it be scary? Yes. Am I right there with you not wanting to trust God? 100%. But I think if we really want to see his power, we have to learn this little thing called trust. He comes along and he says, so our sufficiency is from God who's made us sufficient. Now what has he made us sufficient to do? Here's the question. He said the sufficiency he's given us is to be sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, what's really interesting about that is, is that he doesn't promise us to be sufficient to make our own self-sufficient lives work better. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes the reason that we want God to come in and fix something is so we can go back to our self-sufficient life? Let me just say this right out. God does not make our life sufficient so that we can go back to self-sufficiency. I've had so many people say, I'm struggling, and I've even thought this, I'm struggling. God, what do you want to do in my life? I just want you to fix this. And ultimately, why we want God to fix this is I want to go back to the life that I had before. I want to go back to the same self-sufficient marriage I have, and self-sufficient parenting, and self-sufficient job, and self-sufficient life. And God does not empower us to go back into that. God will never do that. I've even heard sometimes people, and I've done it myself, oh, God was definitely in that. Have you ever wondered sometimes if we say God was in it, and you're like, uh, are you sure God was in that one? Maybe God was in heaven going, no, nah, that wasn't me. You made that happen, and five years from now, it's actually going to be used in one of the areas of weakness that I'm going to show you you shouldn't have trusted in yourself. But he's made it sufficient to be members, ministers of a new covenant. See, the reason that when we cry out to God that he doesn't answer is, is you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God is not going to answer those prayers. Even if we did, by the time you get to 1 Peter 3, it talks about this husband. And in 1 Peter 3, 7, it says that this husband is not hearing, God is not hearing his prayers. Why? Because ultimately, he's asking for with wrong motives. I think that's really at the core of it. It's talking about how marriages get along. And God's like, I don't hear those prayers from you, husband. If you're not walking in the way I've called you to as a person that's involved in the new covenant, I'm not going to hear your prayers. I'm done. So what prayers then does he hear? He hears prayers that have to do with this thing called the new covenant. Okay, let's just, let's just wrap our minds around the new covenant so that we can understand what we're made sufficient for. In Jeremiah 31, we talked about this last week. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In other words, there is something powerful and awesome coming one day. 
Now, again, I think we live in this particular time and we start to yawn at this. But we talked about last week, the prophets and the angels were looking at this going, no way, this time that's coming. And so that's what I was trying to convince you. We are alive at the best time possible during redemption. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In fact, when God created that covenant, they went, they committed themselves to God. They said they're going to follow God. There was blood. There was all kinds of things there. And within about a day, they'd already failed. My covenant that they broke, look at that. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law within them. I will write it. Remember we talked about this last week? On their hearts. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know how to obey God, not because you're so wonderful, but when you came to know Jesus Christ, you now had the law written on your heart. In verse 34, he says, the reason that that happens is, is because you'll be forgiven of your sins by this Messiah who's to come. This one that would cleanse you from all sin, that would make a place now for his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to empower us, to be the people that God wants us to be. And then he says this, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's how our relationship's going to work. Now in Ezekiel, he kind of gives us more of an idea. Not only does he write it on our hearts, but look at this. As that new spirit comes into us, we receive a new heart. He said, I will put it within you. I'm going to do a radical transformation of taking your hard heart. That was the problem with the Israelites. And I'm going to put a new fleshy heart inside of you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And look at this. I will put my spirit inside of you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We are alive at the greatest time ever because we can actually obey God and live the way that he intended us to live. If you know Jesus, you can. What was the saying? Si se puede? Right? Was that what they were saying back in? Didn't that, yes, we can? Okay, I don't know. My Spanish is so wonderful. But the idea is we can. So often I'll hear people say, I can't. I've thought in my head, I can't. We can't go down this path. This is too difficult. This is too hard. To which there was a promise way back when that God says to them, I will make you able to live in the way that I've intended you. That does not mean it's going to be easy. As we talked about, you're going to have to learn through difficulty and trial. But you can be the people that I've intended you to be. And this is crucial for us as believers to understand. Because I feel too often that we as Christians live in this place of defeatism when we have a God who can do all things, who can accomplish stuff beyond anything even we can comprehend. But we have to choose, look at this, to walk in my statutes, carefully obey my rules. See, so often the reason that we don't have power is because we don't want to walk with God. We want him to come walk with us and to make our life better like he's some kind of a genie. My wife calls it the, uh, the rabbit's foot type of Christianity. God, come on, give me a good life. Give me a good life. God is not going to choose to walk our life. He's calling us to walk his. He will never, ever empower us to live the life that has nothing to do with trust in him. But trust in what? Look at that up there. Trust in his promises. 
all of the promises that God has given. He said, you trust me. See, the reason that you don't have to covet, right? This would be one of the laws that's written over our heart. The reason you don't have to covet is because I've given you myself. I've given you the sufficiency of everything. The reason you don't have to steal is because I've given you all things for you to enjoy, the very things that you need. The reason you don't have to do all those things and you can just trust me is I am the sufficient one that will be there for all things. Trust me. And this is, I think, what Paul learned. Even Jesus in John 15, and on both sides of John 15, we're going to talk about this, is the idea of the Holy Spirit that's been placed within us. But people always wonder, how could Jesus say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you? I've never had a prayer life like that, people would say. Because we've missed the key. Not only is it abiding in him, but look at that, and my words abide in you. You know what the powerful reality of prayer is? Is learning to pray what God asks you to pray for. Praying his promises. I don't know how many of you have ever read scripture before and prayed through scripture, but one of the most powerful ways to have a prayer life is to read scripture and start to realize that all those promises that are found, especially inside of the New Covenant and the New Testament, these are amazing promises that God has given us, and he wants us to ask him for what he wants us to ask him for. The only reason that he answers those prayers is because he wanted to answer those prayers in the first place. So often, this is what he's trying to wrestle with us through. This is where trust comes from. And you know this when you start to pray and you pray what God asks you to pray for and we start to see God answer prayers, not in the way we want him to all the ways because sometimes we ask for things where he says, no, this is not where I'm going, but in accordance with his word where he's seeking to go, you're gonna start to realize that as prayers are answered, you gain more and more and more confidence in this God that loves to answer his promises. In other words, he's never promised to heal our sickness, has he? But through our sickness, he's promised to make us more like Jesus. He's never promised to fix our marriages. I remember when my parents were going through their divorce, I cried out to God, God, heal their marriage, change them. The thing I didn't realize was that they were the ones who were sinful that had got themselves to this point. But God was not only changing them in the midst of it, he was also changing me. I didn't think in the midst of all of it, God, this isn't about their marriage. I, I know that at the end of the day you hate divorce, but God, would you change me? Paul says this is where we start to have confidence. Now there's a key to this that we need to start going through here just real quick, and I'll kind of bring it to a close. He says we're made sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Now this kind of part's kind of tricky. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now look at this. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now the letter that he's talking about is definitely he's speaking to hear the law, but it's this Greek word grama, which means words. He didn't use the word law, I think, on purpose because he doesn't want to create a dichotomy between the law and the Spirit because we know from reading the Bible, especially when we look at the book of Romans, Romans 8, Paul declaratively says in verses 3 through 4 that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is everything we talked about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 is the problem's not in the law. The problem is in us. 
See, the reality of this letter of not, but of the Spirit, he's talking about this contrast in which the only way that we're ever going to understand the truths of God's word is through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's this concept that he's trying to get across to us of dependence. I have to be dependent on the Spirit. Non-dependent people, look at this, only experience the reality of the letter killing now, I could say this also. We could put the gospel in there because in, in, in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, Paul says actually that the gospel can also in a unique way kill if I don't have the spirit. There's all kinds of people that have rejected the gospel and the outcome of the rejection of the gospel is, is they're going to experience an eternity apart from Christ forever. It only can kill. The law in the same way could only, now the gospel is so much better, don't, don't get me wrong, but the law also in the same way could declare that we are guilty, but it's powerless because it needs the working of the Holy Spirit inside of us. If you are sitting here today, now just think about this. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Remember a few weeks ago I said, how many of you have just stood in front of the mirror ever and just been totally shocked that because of the work of Jesus in cleansing you, now the Holy Spirit resides in you? That's crazy. Not only is he in me, but also in this room, he is amongst us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We all, and it's what I said before, are a part of the greatest time of redemption ever. Let me just speak to you, those of you that don't know Jesus. This is so crucial. You will never, ever be able to live the life that God's called you to live if you don't first bend your knee to Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness so that the Holy Spirit might dwell in you. Never. There's a point of surrender to the work of Jesus where you have to bend the knee to King Jesus and tell him that I am insufficient of myself whatsoever. But in that insufficiency, what happens to us in our belief is that God, now through the power of his Holy Spirit, comes in, changes our hearts, writes on this new heart of flesh, the law, and causes us to be the people that God intended. It is the outcome of coming to know Jesus Christ. Now, here's the sad thing. Oftentimes, we tell people that once you believe in Jesus and you're not going to hell, that's cool. At least you're not going to hell. Then what happens is, is then people place their faith not wanting to go to hell. In other words, I would say in some ways, it's an insufficient belief in the gospel because really, we don't want to bend our knee to him as Lord. We just don't want to go to hell. And so we kind of, in a weird way, just say, look, I'm going to place my faith kind of in you because I don't want to go to hell at the end. But really, at the end of the day, it's not going to change my life in the least. I think there are a lot of people, even potentially sitting here today, that have had that kind of faith. And potentially the reason you see no power in your life is because you've never truly bent the knee to Jesus as King and as Lord and received the Holy Spirit and the new heart inside of you. Don't play games with God on this. I think even as we talk with our kiddos about knowing who Jesus is so often, and, and, and I just dare you for a second, 
in all of the book of Acts and all the way through the epistles, did you know that Paul very rarely uses the idea of escapism from hell as the reason to come to know Jesus Christ? Almost all times he's talking about this Jesus who cleanses us and the Holy Spirit who comes into us and makes us different. That's his call. That does not eliminate the reality of a real lake of fire that's facing all people that don't know Jesus Christ. There is a punishment apart from him forever. But I so think that at the end of the day, because we've placed our faith in more of a a get out of hell free card than a true coming to know Jesus, that's why we don't see power in our lives. That's what Paul is saying to them. This is the confidence that I've found. He has found a confidence of the power of God at work in him as he trusts in the promises of God, places his trust in him, and then begins to see God's power begin to work through him. That's what he's talking about. Now let me ask you some tough questions here as we get ready to go. I got these from Scott Hafferman just at the end of his, if you want to look him up, but he just said this. Have we traded in the work of the Spirit under the new covenant for our own best efforts and feeble attempts to do the right thing for God? Oftentimes what I'll hear people say is, you know, I'm just praying that this, uh, I don't know, financial deal comes through so I can give more money for God. God's like, that's not sufficient. Do we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to change our lives more and more? Are we content with our current spiritual plateau? How many of you have just gotten comfortable with where you're at? I'm cool where I'm at. Kind of just coasting through life. Remember last week we talked about the sports car? By the way, I found out it wasn't the fastest sports car. Some smart aleck kid came up and told me differently. I rebuked him and told him never to come back. But I feel like we're just in first gear. annoying, isn't it? God's looking at us going, trust me, shift the second, third, fourth, fifth, I don't know, 25. Shift. Do we break the link between faith and obedience in our daily lives as if God's commands no longer apply to us as long as we believe in Jesus? We have this idea in which belief, it just this assent to God is enough, but God says, I don't play that game. Do we offer ourselves cheap grace when we sin, or do we fight the fight of faith and rooting out sin in our lives by bringing it into light with serious grief and repentance over unbelief? When's the last time, and I was asking myself this question, when's the last time you cried and over your sinfulness? And just saw, my gosh, my sinfulness is actually not trusting God. And not trusting God is actually the worst thing that I can do. It places me on the shaky sand. It places me on a relationship with him. When's the last time you saw sin for what it is? Sin is just nasty. And the beauty of what God does to the person of Jesus is not to leave us in our sin. But when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Deal with your sin. But I don't want to deal with my sin. Do you realize that if I'm honest with my sin, I'm going to hurt my wife, I'm going to hurt my husband, I'm going to hurt my kids, I'm going to hurt the people that love me. Yes, you will, but listen to me. No transformation ever happens in the life of people without pain. But here's the thing about pain with God. God loves to take pain and make it redemptive and turn it from something that's so ugly like sinfulness into something that is so powerful like restoration. Don't stay in your sin. Here's the last one. 
What evidence do we have that we belong to Christ as a member of the New Covenant community? Now, I used to tell people, if you've just assented to the right information, you're good. Now, let me just say this right off the bat. I don't believe the Bible in the least teaches that we can lose our salvation. But I do think there are many people potentially sitting here that have merely placed their faith in not going to hell or placed their faith in just somehow, you know, things getting better. And what you're seeing is no power coming out of your life. And the Bible talks about where there's no fruit, you should be honest with yourself and ask the question, why? That's the negative. Now, let me give you the positive. One of the things that I've been praying for for Cornerstone and for myself as part of Cornerstone, don't you want to see this thing work? Aren't you kind of sick of sitting in first gear? Isn't there this side of it that you definitely want to experience God in a way that is so different than you currently are? Part of this surrender thing and this weakness thing, though, is the willingness to enter into it and say, God, I will do whatever you ask me to do. I'm going to enter into it with you. So here's what I want to throw out to us for this next week. I'm going to give you homework. Are you ready? But I'm going to practice this homework, too. I've been already practicing it. Here's the first one. I would love for all of you in this room to ask the question of God to show you where your self-reliance is. Ask that question. God, where is my self-reliance? Would you show me where my self-reliance is? Now, if after praying for a while, you still don't know what it is, ask somebody that knows you and they'd be happy to tell you. Man, it was so good. It was uh, Terry, you mind if I talk about this? I'm just going to be brief. But like I was, we were driving back um, from the elder retreat, and I looked at Terry, and I asked him this question. I said, Terry, where do you think it is? And he pinpointed it and put his finger on it and poked at it like a big jerk. And, uh, but it was the faithful wound of a what? A friend. Gosh, I just had to go home, and I had to do the next thing. When I asked for it, here's number two. Don't be surprised if he shows you with difficulty. In order for me to do what Terry threw out at me, it was not going to be a fun task, what I had to do. Oh my gosh. It was something in the back of my head I had put off, and to be honest with you, I would put off for quite a long time. But in that moment, here's the third thing. Instead of fixing or fleeing, remain in the difficulty. Don't run. We tend to fight, flight, or freeze. In this case, freeze. Stay in it. Understand it. Confess to God that you don't trust him with this and believe his way is better, that it's good. Lack of trust in God is sin. Tell God that. Ask him for forgiveness. He loves to forgive you for your non-trust. Don't hold it back. He already knows anyways. Next, seek God's word and God's people for how God would have you respond. Go find out from God, God, how do you want me to look at this thing? Because my tendency is to try to fix it in my knowledge, in my power, in my understanding, and to go to other people, find people that are close to you that will be honest with you, and throw those things on the table and begin to work through. 
Then come back to God and ask him for right motives to do it. God, I'm not just asking you to make life simpler. I'm asking you because I want to learn trust in you. Because by learning trust in you, I will learn that you are good and I will experience your power. And so God, I don't want it for any other reason. Just the simple fact, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know suffering like his death. I want to know you, Jesus. I want to live the new covenant not for a self-reliant life. And here's the last thing. Go obey. Whatever. Go obey. Trust that God's going to empower you. Trust that God will give you the words. Trust that God will allow you to walk through whatever it is that's there. Remember I talked about earlier there's maybe sin in your life? I really believe there's sin in somebody's people's lives within this particular place that you have not confessed and not dealt with. And I'm telling you, today is the day to deal with it. You know what God wants you to do. You know there's a promise in dealing with it. There's all kinds of areas. Maybe it's even with you, you're seeing weakness in your side of your life. Not necessarily sin. Maybe just some of you battle in an ongoing way with anxiety or you battle in an ongoing way. And again, not anxiety simple, but just this idea that it's just constantly this thorn in my flesh. Take it to God. Maybe you're struggling with your parenting. Gosh. Me. Those little suckers don't do what I tell them to do. Have you ever noticed that our kids, we think we're there, we're these wonderful vessels of wonderfulness for them, and God put those exact kids in our lives to be the people he intends us to be? Whatever it is, walk it. Now, if you need prayer today, I'll be over here. There'll be other people over here. We'd love to pray with you about it. Now, Billy, you can come up. He, like, got up and got down. You can come up. If you want, we can pray for you. Now, let me just say this. Remember what I said last week about leaving? Remember that? Okay, I'm serious. There are armed guards with squirt guns outside. If you leave, we will squirt you in love. Now, here's why. There's two guys that we presented to you at the beginning of the month, Christian Burkhart and Chris Hay. And so what we're going to do here over these last few minutes is we have walked through a process with them, and I'll let Brent explain it, but I don't want you to leave because I want you to be here as we pray over them, all right? Okay. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. God bless you.